Jain evening prayers at Hathising Temple in Ahmedabad, the capital of Gujarat, northwest India. This ornate 19th century temple is on Ahmedabad's Delhi Road, now lined with low-rise shops and cafes. It's just outside the old city walls. This part of India is where both Jainism and the worship of Vishnu are strongest, the most vegetarian strands of India's religious life. But the ruler who founded this city in 1411 was Muslim. By the 15th century, many Indian kingdoms, particularly in the north, are Muslim sultanates. And in the 16th century, Europeans discover the route around Africa and start arriving in numbers, planting Christian colonies. Indian vegetarianism is already known in Europe from the occasional ancient or medieval travelogue. It fascinates the new arrivals. In 1515, an Italian explorer, Andrea Corsali, reports to his boss. Certain infidels called Gujarati do not feed upon anything that contains blood, nor do they permit among them that any injury be done to any living creature, like our Leonardo da Vinci. This episode, we look at how Indian vegetarianism reacts to the power of Islam or Christianity, even as Christianity is changed and challenged by the Renaissance will discover gurus who welcome both Hindus and Muslims, a Mughal ruler so influenced that he was even rumoured to convert from Islam to Jainism, and new vegetarian religious movements that stem from this conversation that goes both ways. Vegetarianism, the story so far with Ian MacDonald. Episode 8, Contacts. Islam and Christianity were already in India, brought by traders in the first millennium, but Muslim rule came from Central Asia, advancing east down the Ganges plain in the 13th century. We heard last episode how they sacked monasteries. They'd also rebuild the main temples as mosques. But this didn't mean everybody dropped their food rules and became a Muslim. On a rainy day in New Delhi, I went to Jawaharlal Nehru University, and in a building plastered with rival political posters, Dr. Pius Malikandathil told me how Islam gradually won converts. Now, we don't find many instances of compelling uh, situation or coercive situation where Islam is being introduced with the force. Rulers differed. Indian history has sultans who supported other religions or forced conversions at sword point or who, more often, just offered converts tax incentives. And we'll discover later how one of the most powerful was also one of the most tolerant. In many parts of North India, Islam spread through the Sufi channels. There were many Sufi kankas, Sufi dargas, people who went there. They came from different cultural background. They maintained same cultural traditions, same food traditions. 
while they visited the dargahs and kankhas sufi shrines and later the second or third generation actually embraced islam in its pristine purity till then it was a fluvial islam a fluvial a flowing and adopting a, yeah adopting both the traditions this is qawwali a type of sufi devotional singing that developed in 13th century delhi Sufism is the ascetic mystical strand of Islam and fortunately for us in this era is the most veg friendly one and devotional singing like this is one of the reasons that this strand was the one that took hold in India it's not a million miles away from the indian bhakti devotions chanting of the names of god seeking a oneness with the divine sufis and bhaktis both venerate shrines in fact some of the local deities were simply recast as sufi saints and today many sufi shrines are venerated by both muslims and hindus in the 16th century there was even a dictionary that translated every concept in vishnu worshiping bhakti devotional songs into a metaphor for something muslim so that the sufis could use the hindu songs without even having to change the lyrics and by the late middle ages it seems to be normal not a rule not universal just normal for sufis to be vegetarian sometimes not just out of asceticism but out of ahimsa opposition to violence too such as the 13th century sufi the reclusive learned hamiduddin nagori sent to actively preach vegetarianism to his followers in the new delhi sultanate in 14th century kashmir in the northwestern himalayan foothills a hindu holy woman seems to inspire a sufi order lala worshiped shiva and condemned brahminical sacrifices She inspires Nuruddin, a Sufi sent to live in a cave on wild spinach and leaves. He says that though meat might be permissible under Islamic law, he still considers it cruel. His order is called the Rishis and that's a Sanskrit word for a religious ascetic. Many see them as a Muslim take on the Hindu sannyasin. This is how Jahangir, a 17th century Mughal emperor we'll get back to later, describes them. there is also a body of fakirs whom they call rishis though they have not religious knowledge or learning of any sort yet they possess simplicity and are without pretense they abuse no one they eat no flesh they have no wives and always plant fruit-bearing trees in the fields so that men may benefit by them themselves deriving no advantage and the poet kabir in the 15th century saw the muslim hindu divide as idol boasting a distraction from the universal ineffable truth of god both bhakti hindus and sufi muslims claimed him as one of their own his poetry condemned both the violence of brahminical animal sacrifice and muslim ritual slaughter a dinner of rice and beans is sublime when seasoned with bloodless salt who would cut his throat to have meat with his bread kabir's followers today the kabir panth are teetotal vegetarians so vegetarianism persists within indian islam in fact in the 16th century mughal court the figure of speech for vegetarianism is sufiana sufi food those lines of kabir come to us by the holy book of the sikhs the guru granth Sikhism develops in Punjab in the centuries after Kabir from the kind of influences we've been talking about. It's casteless, monotheistic and its scriptures include Kabir and Hamiduddin Nagori as well as the other Baptists, Sufis and of course the Sikh gurus. Mainstream Sikhism 
is quite definitely very omnivorous. Though, like Baptists and Sufis, it has communal meals that are usually vegetarian to be inclusive. And with tens of thousands of people eating there every day, the Sikh Golden Temple at Amritsar has the biggest free veggie meal in the world. And some dissenting strands of Sikhism strongly argue, looking back to some of those poets, that the Sikh should indeed be vegetarian. We will look to the Eastern Indian Baptists later. Dr. Pius Malikantathal specialises in the first European colonists, the Portuguese, and they become one of the less tolerant rulers. The Portuguese came to Goa in 1510, but this forceful intervention in the culture of Goa happened from 1540 onwards. And by 1540, the southwestern trading port of Goa is the headquarters of a dozen Portuguese forts, possessions and territories spread around the subcontinent's coastline. After 1540, that corresponds with the time of uh, the counter-reformation movements in Europe. Martin Luther's 95 Theses are gathering momentum. Henry VIII has wiped out England's monasteries. Mm, which coincides also with the Council of Trent. Which is the Vatican's reaction to the Reformation, Reformation movements, an assertion of a lot of uh, traditional beliefs, as well as trying to tackle some of the criticisms. Is, yeah. The Portuguese crown is mainly interested in ethnically Jewish refugees, Half a century ago, in 1492, the Emirate of Granada, the Iberian Peninsula's last Muslim holdout, fell. Its Jews fled persecution. In Goa, they can meet local Jews, rediscover their suppressed faith, and perhaps shed their forced conversion. The church takes a dim view of that. In 1545, the Pope's man in Goa, Jesuit priest Francis Xavier, requests the Inquisition, though the idea takes a while to get going. When it does... It turns on the local pescatarian, quote, pagan idolaters. And this is a time when temples were destroyed. Almost 95, 98% of the people were converted to Christianity. It was a forcible conversion and uh, they were converted. By uh, the end of the 16th century, they transformed the eating traditions of Goa compelling the people to resort to non-vegetarian food items like eating of beef and using of non-vegetarian dishes in their meals. And the forced conversions are coming from the proper inquisition. Tests of faith, torture, burning people at the stake. They were being forcibly converted to Christianity. Those who resisted, they fled away from Goa. The Portuguese were taking exactly the same tack in India as they were taking in South America. Exactly, exactly. And once they were converted to Christianity, then there was a cultural shock, meaning they embraced new religion. And at the time of the embracing of new religion out of coercion and fear, they did not realize that they had to do away with the old cultural ties. So they were maintaining old cultural practices, they were revering the old deities, they were maintaining the old food habits. But the politics at that point of time could not make out clearly whether this is pagan or non-pagan. The Portuguese Inquisition doesn't know what's pagan and what's just Indian and is not taking chances. Eating with hand was considered to be a, a non-Christian action. Eating with hand 
and using of vegetarian food was identified with Hindu culture. So eventually uh, consumption of beef, mutton, chicken, they were projected as a part of the Christian way of life, which is a wrong perception. And the Hindus, particularly the Gaudasars of Brahmins of Goa, they resisted this move. They had to flee away from Goa. If they were to remain in Goa, they were to become Christian. And so on that front, even mere pescatarianism is retreating. We'll get back to Goa later in the show. By this time, a new Muslim dynasty, the Mughals, has come in from Central Asia. It's Mongol by ancestry, Persian by culture, and from 1556 to 1605, the emperor is Akbar, the great, one of the major figures of Indian history. He dominates the subcontinent, absorbing many separate kingdoms like the Gujarat Sultanate, creating the Mughal Empire as a multicultural dominion. And despite his heavily meat-eating culture, he is fascinated by vegetarianism. Providence has prepared variety of food for man. But through ignorance and gluttony, he destroys living creatures and makes his body a tomb for beasts. If I were not a king, I would leave off eating flesh at once. And now it is my intention to quit it by degrees. In her home in Oxford, England, I asked Professor Sanjukta Gupta about him. His grandfather who first came, Babar, was looking at Ghazni all the time, the place he came from. He didn't think, he didn't like India, he didn't think he was Indian. The, his father, Humayun, lost the empire, but Akbar felt he is Indian. And he wanted to make an Indian empire. Because Akbar was a very, was a man who was very curious about religions and... He was also very diplomatic. Mm. His religious curiosity was contacted with the diplomacy. This is the place we used to pour the vegetarian jaw, wheat, bajra for the these birds. The green birds, are they parakeets? They, they are parrots. They're parrots? They're parrots and pigeons. Parrots and pigeons. The thousands of parrots and pigeons used to come over here. Mm. They used to have their food. This is Agra, Akbar's main capital in the middle of the north of the subcontinent. I spent a day in Agra looking for contacts between Akbar and traditional Indian vegetarianism. I went from the Archaeological Survey of India to a Jain bone surgeon to the bedroom of Guru of a Bhakti order and finally met Sashil and Ashoka Jain who helped maintain this temple with a monument to one of these conversations. So- we can hear a wedding band in the background behind us. We're just a, a hundred meters from the bustling streets of a suburb of Agra. We're in a field in front of a monument with an artificial moat and something that looks a little bit to my western eyes like a bandstand. What am I looking at? Yeah, we are standing near to the temple of Jain Saint Achar Hirvijayasuriji. He came from Gujarat, stayed at this place, gave a great speech on non-violence and vegetarians to Samrat Akbar. By the time Hiravijaya Suri, the head of a Jain monastic order, was summoned in the 1580s, Samrat, or Emperor Akbar, was already dissatisfied with the breadth of Islam alone. 
He's built his imperial fort at the site of his favourite Sufi, half a day's walk west of the city, and had, since 1578, thrown his hall of worship with its Thursday evening theological discussions open to all faiths, even the new Portuguese Catholics. His vizier recorded... Sufi philosopher, orator, Sharia jurist, Sunni, Shia, Brahman, ascetic yati, ordained Jain monk, materialist, Charavaka, Jesuit, Jew, Sabi, Zoroastrian, and others enjoyed exquisite pleasure by beholding the calmness of the assembly. The Jain account of their meeting has been passed on in hagiographies and inscriptions, including this one, on a hill in Gujarat, famous for its hundreds of Jain temples. The mighty teachers were honourably summoned by the fortunate Shah Akbar from Gujarat. Achar Hirbhajasuriji at that time was staying at Gujarat, Ahmedabad. Achar means spiritual leader. Sashil described how Hirvijaya's reputation for holiness was said to have reached Akbar. He listened about his greatness. He listened about his wisdom. He listened about his miracles and invited him to Agra. He came. On by road. 840 kilometers, over 500 miles. And Akbar, number of time, Akbar came to him, listened to him. He was a saint, so he came by foot to avoid accidentally hurting anything on the way. In Jainism, saints never use any vehicle. They go by path. Due to avoid the violence of Pranimat. How did he react? to this sermon on vegetarianism. When Akbar listened for 75 minutes from the great mouth of Achar Hirvijay Suriji about Jainism and vegetarianism, he made some laws to prevent the non-vegetarian product in his rule for 15 months. That's a substantial claim. To get some context for it, I talked to Dr. Peter Flugel, our regular expert in Jainism at London School of Oriental and African Studies. Hiravijaya Suri, he explained, was one of a series of Jain Acharyas at Akbar's court. After one Acharya, after a few years, went back to Gujarat, another one had to come. He suggests a political aspect to the summons. Um, clearly is. He had sympathies. He was interested in all religions, but he also required these Acharyas to be at court in order, I would suggest, to control them. And uh, these were, of course, hugely influential personalities uh, and their supporters, very wealthy and important for the maintenance of the state financially. And some of them were even accompanying his armies and giving advice on astrology, etc., etc. He tried to spread Jainism and encouraged the vegetarian atmosphere, vegetarian lifestyle in his rule. In 2008, the Indian Supreme Court cited Akbar. A Jain-dominated municipality wanted to ban slaughterhouses from opening during their main festival. And the court said it was legal, citing this six-month ban mentioned both in the temple inscription and in an imperial decree or farman. Proclaimed by beat of the great drum a truce of six months in all lands. I'm kind of impressed that Akbar went for a big anti-slaughter headline. 
but the details seem to limit it to particular areas and species. And there's some evidence it wasn't fully enforced. I don't think the the influence in terms of vegetarianism were that grand. As a ruler, personally, you may, be, may have been very impressed. There are other reasons to think he was. One of those Portuguese Jesuits, Father Pinheiro, after failing to convert Akbar to Christianity, wrote, This king has destroyed the false sect of Muhammad and wholly discredited it. The king has made a sect of his own and makes himself out to be a prophet. He adores God and the sun and is a Hindu. He follows the sect of the Jains. Akbar did set up his own sect that combined religious traditions. It had just a handful of followers at court, but it scandalised the Islamic establishment. From what we know of it, it wasn't Jain at all, but he did tell his few followers to adopt an increasing number of vegetarian days. I mean, Akbar obviously made some concessions to the Jains. I think the usual concession the Jains exert from rulers is that one day or another, particularly Paryushana, their holy week, all slaughterhouses should be closed. I mean, this is sort of the standard concession. Ordering prohibition of animal slaughter for an additional seven days from... During these 12 days called Purchusur, no animal should be slaughtered. Also certain uh, sacred sites are going to be protected or even handed over to the Jains by, by law. To see the Vijayasana Suri and other Jains be respected and their old temples and the religious places be allowed to be repaired and rebuilt. Uh, and so part of what we can see, maybe the ground on which we're standing, is Akbar's gift. Yeah, it was a, a, small, a small portion. Previously there were some Jain people who owned this land and after that some, some part was added by Akbar Baisha. This okay. temple, this temple was uh, under the guidance of Achar Rajen Suriji Maharaja. In the detail of one of his imperial decrees, Akbar interjects his private opinions. The real point is this: he should not harm any animal, nor make his stomach the grave of animals. Yes, we've met rulers who are probably fully vegetarian in China and Rome as well as India, but I find Akbar profoundly interesting as a Muslim by birth who allows himself to be influenced towards vegetarianism by the other religious traditions of India. His son, Jahangir, continues these close relationships with Jains until around 1610, when he has a personal falling out with a Jain monk, by which time, back in Goa, the Portuguese have decided to welcome back the Brahmins for some very prosaic reasons. Pius Malikandathal. By end of the 16th century, by beginning of the 17th century, many of the Brahmins came back. As, as bankers and as... Financiers, as uh, uh, tax farm renters, they were there. In Goa, in Cochin and elsewhere, they controlled the enclave where they settled down, the Europeans settled down. And uh, by 17th century, the parties could not interfere in the food traditions of the natives in the way they used to do in the 16th century. Because they became the moneyed people, the financiers, the bankers. No, I, I think the, the, the Jesuits that who came first, uh, St. Francis Xavier and the other Portuguese missionaries, uh, they were converting people and uh, making them culturally Portuguese. By the turn of the 17th century, some of the Catholic Jesuit missionaries are trying a different approach. 
They call it accommodatio, accommodation. Sometimes it means going vegetarian and sometimes absolutely the opposite. Father Miller Das follows in their footsteps with books expressing Christian theology in Asian terms. I met him at the Jesuit Loyola College in the University of Madras, where he runs a cross-faith institution. The place is called the Institute of Dialogue with Cultures and Religions. I walked there past not just students and playing fields, but the white plaster of French colonial architecture, facades of arches and arcades on the main building, and a Western European-style church. So it was uh, Roberto de Nobili who came much later. Landing in Goa in 1605. And uh, so he wanted to reach out to the, the, the real higher Hindu people and led by the Brahmins, uh, as he thought, which was true. And uh, he thought that these Brahmins identified missionaries as foreigners, as Portuguese, uh, even called them Ferengis, and who, who were... Uh, which is the Hindu word for foreigner. Who were uh, meat-eaters, who were behaving like Europeans and so on. Therefore, they didn't have any great respect for these missionaries. Therefore, he opted to become to present himself as a sannyasi, because as a sannyasi is someone who has renounced the world. And he, as a Jesuit, he also has renounced the world. And uh, he thought that that was a status uh, in the Indian tradition that will correspond to the religious life in the Christian tradition. So he, he really saw the connection between being a Christian monk and being uh, a mendicant in, in Hinduism or Buddhism. Yeah, I think the more basic affirmation is that uh, you can become a Christian and continue to be an Indian. So if you met Roberto de Nobili preaching in South India, he'd have looked just like a pale-skinned holy man, white cloak and staff and shaven head and vegetarian food. But remaining Indian meant that you belong to the caste system and the caste observances and so on. So therefore, he was defending that uh, symbols and gestures like uh, being a vegetarian or uh, having uh, the tuft of hair or the tilak on your forehead, etc., etc. These are not Hindu customs or not Hindu habits. These are, uh, let's say, indications of uh, a social status. And therefore, uh, they were allowed to use them because they did not lose their status by becoming Christian. In episode six, we looked at how Brahminic vegetarianism developed largely as a question of ritual purity, as a kind of caste system bragging right. Those Baptists you mentioned earlier are scathing about that. But de Nobili argues to the Vatican that it's just a social thing without any deeper religious meaning, an argument he eventually, posthumously wins. But the, the, the church did finally defend uh, what de Nobili did. But there were other missionaries who carried on in that accommodatio tradition. Sure, sure. Hmm. It continues today. If you go to a, any village in Tamil Nadu, you won't be able to make out who is a Christian, who is a Hindu. Elsewhere in Asia, the Jesuits hope to displace Buddhism, and their vegetarianism is an article of the rival faith. In Ming Dynasty China, at the turn of the 17th century, the Italian Matteo Ricci discovers he can present Christianity as a form of Confucianism. He dresses as a Confucian scholar. He calls his book The True Meaning of the Lord of Heaven. He spends quite a bit of it pouring scorn on Buddhist vegetarianism, bringing up questions that are 
tediously familiar to any vegetarian today. Grass and trees also possess a vegetative soul and belong to the category of living things. But each day you prepare vegetables for your meals and cut firewood for burning, you are harming their lives. And Father Ricci questions the hypocrisy of having individual days of not eating meat. It is like a person who kills people daily and devours their flesh, but who then, wishing to join the camp of the compassionate, says, I shall refrain from killing and eating people on the 1st and 15th of the month. Can this be called refraining from taking life? I know some animal advocates who'd say the same thing about meat-free Mondays. The original Jesuit missionary, Francis Xavier, moved on to Japan after Goa. Christianity gained footholds amongst local nobles. Over the centuries, as Christianity encroaches, the medieval Japanese taboo on eating domestic animals slowly unravels. But there's a more persistent vegetarian movement forming in northeast India. After an interview at the School of Oriental and African Studies, I came across some Bhakti Vishnu devotees distributing vegan curry. So I naturally got one. Help yourself. Yes, nice rice, look. Hare Krishna. And this vegetable. Hare Krishna, how are you? Welcome to lunch. They're part of a movement called Bengal Vaishnavism, whose guru lived in the early 16th century and in which the vegetarianism of Vishnu worshippers is particularly strong. For them, it's not Krishna who is an incarnation of Vishnu, it's the other way round. My name is Cherkadamba Das. I'm a monk. So who's Krishna? Krishna is a, well, Krishna is God. His favorite form, his uh, real form, you could say, where, where he is mostly himself, is a blue cowherd boy uh, who plays a flute and uh, plays with his friends and just has a good time. This tradition of distributing food is shared between Sufis, Sikhs and Bhaktis like these. Like all the food that is that we cook, we offer it to Krishna first, so then it becomes sanctified food, and so it's, in a way it becomes blessed. So then it becomes prashad, so it becomes the Lord's food. If you remember the ancients, the idea of offering food to the gods and taking the remains for yourself was originally a justification for animal sacrifice. And now it's also used to promote vegetarianism. This particular group call themselves the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Sanjokta Gupta. Krishna Consciousness comes from the name of the leader who introduced this, this sect. His name was Sri Krishna Chaitanya. Chaitanya means consciousness. So whose consciousness was completely taken by Krishna? That was his... Chaitanya was born as a Bengal Brahmin and seemed destined for life as a scholar. But at 22 in Gaya, on pilgrimage in the ancient Magadha heartland where our story began, he had an epiphany and became an all-singing, all-dancing Bhakti devotee and guru. And to his followers, even more than that. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is an incarnation of Krishna who comes to us and gives us this very, very simple uh, process of chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare and Hare now, Bhakti devotional chanting is heard around the world, including central London. This is the transcendental sound vibration is coming from the spiritual sky. It touches your soul and you feel ecstatic in your heart and you want to chant more and more. It's like, how do you feel? How do you feel chanting Hare Krishna? But okay, we, we feel connected with this life, with, with universe and we feel happiness in that way. 
Bengal is in northeast India, on the opposite side of the subcontinent to Kashmir, Punjab and Gujarat, but by the 16th century the rulers have been Muslim for two or three hundred years, and that slowly changes things. There have been courts, religious courts, and they were also very, well, partial to Muslims, of course. It's not just that, in the long run, some people are going to convert from the worship of Vishnu stroke Krishna to the worship of Allah. It's that the worship of Krishna becomes a bit more like the worship of Allah. The uh, traditionalism, the purity, etc. were waning. So that's one of the reasons why in Chaitanya uh, this movement didn't want to have caste system or caste values. Because... Reaction to Islam, actually. Which, of course, has no caste barriers. Krishna has gone from being a mythic hero of the Mahabharata to the divine philosopher of the Gita, to being an incarnation of Vishnu, to being the incarnation of Vishnu and the supreme being, who incarnates in history to start a religion. It's not that far from the European idea of what a religion is. They have then to categorise absolutely and make a sort of system out of the sect because uh, Chaitanya was a very much passionate person and he, his teachings were from example how he led his life. But there were people who followed that. How did this movement take vegetarianism with it? Ahimsa and purity. Purity was not very consciously done. Their main motto was to be kind to living beings, jive daya. And if you're initiated into a religion rather than born into a caste, then you need to know what it's all about. And that's why even when the low caste are accepted in, they have to learn their theology, at least basic theology. Did that have the effect of spreading vegetarianism? Because to the, towards the lower caste. Mm. who are not always necessarily vegetarian. Some Bengal Vaishnavas moved to the mythical sites of Krishna's life between Delhi and Agra in central North India. And it grew very much in the 16th and 17th century. It becomes one of the main forms of Vishnu worship in North India. And in the 1960s, a Gaudiya Vaishnava guru goes to America and founds an evangelical internationalist society. But that's another story. This conversation will continue, and as French or British arrive, we'll discover how they affect Indian vegetarianism and what some of them take back to Europe. But by the 17th century, the recurring travellers' tales of Indian compassion for animals have become part of the European Renaissance, alongside the works of ancient Greece and Rome being rediscovered and translated. The English philosopher Francis Bacon, writing in 1605 about an animal-friendly proverb from the Old Testament of the Bible, pulls all the strands together. Why? We see that there were, under the Old Covenant, many precepts that were not just ceremonial, but instituted from mercy, such as that of not eating flesh with the blood thereof and the like. Even in the sects of the Essenes and the Pythagoreans, they altogether abstained from eating flesh, 
which to this day is observed through an inviolate superstition by many of the eastern people under the Mughal. And it's that renaissance in a Europe newly reminded of more compassionate ways of living that we turn to next episode. With music by Rob Masters and from Vintage Sense and Casa Asia and the voices of Jeremy Hancock, Selva Rasselingham and Sandeep Garcha. This episode was sponsored by Kickstarter backer JC Costa, to whom I'm very grateful. Follow on Facebook and twitter.com slash veganoption and discover more at theveganoption.org. If you like this series, and I'm guessing you do if you've listened this far, please help get the word out. I always say this, but review on iTunes or your podcast provider would be fantastic. Please share on Twitter and Facebook. Embed the SoundCloud player on your blog and let people know if you think they'll like it. This is taking months of unpaid work, so please do spread the word. And thank you very much for listening. How do, you, how do you all feel now? Ecstatic. Oh, that's good. Very nice. Very nice. Free from illusion. <laughs> and suffering. <laughs>